The following episode of Written and Directed By contains discussions about sexual assault and sexual violence. Viewer discretion is advised. Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? everybody and welcome to the second episode of written and directed by this week we are going to be discussing pulp fiction i am joined as always by my co-host bradley say hello to the people bradley hello this is bradley vincent thank you everybody for joining us we're so excited you are here yeah and we have a special guest on this episode it is simon how you doing buddy Good. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. So Simon is the host of the Ravens podcast, which is a One Tree Hill podcast, also covering movies. Um, We have covered One Tree or One Tree Hill. (laughs) We have covered Dawson's Creek together, the entirety of Dawson's Creek on Cape Side Chats. Um, If we have any Dawson's Creek fans out there listening, uh, you can go subscribe to the Ravens and listen to that as well. So we're reuniting here. I hope the Cape Side fans are happy about that. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this is, this is, and this is my first time uh, meeting slash talking to him. And so far it's been a pleasure. So I, yeah, I thank you for joining us. Nah, thank you for having me. Pleasure to meet you. This is about as opposite Dawson's Creek as you can get. <laughs> in oh, pulp man. Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as we said, we are going to be discussing 1994's Pulp Fiction. This is the second film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Um, And as always, I kind of, we like to start the podcast off with talking a little bit about our personal history with this film. So what is your personal, you know, experience with this movie, Simon? Well, okay. So this is one of the films that my dad showed me way too young, but it was one of the, it, it was the 90s. But I wouldn't have seen it when it first came out, but I remember it being a movie of note. And before Pulp Fiction, my dad showed me Reservoir Dogs first. And I know you just, you guys just covered that. Mm -hmm. And it was, he didn't really tell me too much about it, but it was the first time where I knew that it was a dialogue heavy movie. And I love the fact that 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 movie all happened in one room. And he loved the like dark humor of Michael Madsen's character, like speaking into the dude's ear and after he's cut it Mm -hmm. off and all that kind of stuff. And so I remember from a young age thinking that that was amazing because I was watching it through my dad's eyes and he was amazed by it. So I remember when Mm -hmm. he first showed me Pulp Fiction, I was definitely confused about the timeline of things. There were definitely loads of things that went over my head, but I remember thinking that John Travolta and Samuel Jackson were so cool. And just remember thinking that the all of the dialogue aspects were really cool. And then years later, I worked in Blockbuster as mm. a student when I was at college. And so following the the dream of everyone that worked in Blockbuster, the Quentin Tarantino dream that, you know, he was one of us. He worked mm-hmm. in the video rental store and he made it to this point. We all idolized him. 
and idolized his movies. And I remember in particular me and one of my friends that also worked there, we just loved this film and would watch it religiously. I must have seen it easily like 20 times. It's definitely in my like top 10 movies of all time. I easily watched it twice uh, in the last 24 hours. <laughs> and I have quite a busy life. You know, I have a child yeah. and a wife and things, but I, I made time. This is also a movie that I can just listen to. Like I've just yeah. listened to the dialogue while I'm, you know, doing things around the house or walking my dog or whatever. So I really love this film. It's definitely... I've uh, enjoyed and appreciated the layers and the nuance of it as I've got older. There are also some things that haven't aged as well, which I'm sure, you know, we, we're going to touch upon. <laughs> but yeah, this is a special film to me. I love it. And I'm so excited to hear about your guys' history and to get into it as well. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Bradley? What What's your experience with Pulp Fiction? Uh, I feel like I've talked about this a <clears throat> couple times actually i strangely saw this in the theater when i was like four years old uh, um, because every summer i would go and visit my grandma and she got um she's a she's a pretty big cinephile as well and she would get tired of going to see whatever kid movie i wanted to see when i was four or five years old so she was like you're gonna go see a movie i want to see and so we uh went and saw this um I had absolutely no clue what was going on, but I was nonetheless like still so intrigued. Like I was still glued to what was happening, even though I had no idea what was happening. Um, I remember not retaining much of it, probably because I was four or five, but I do remember like a year or two later, uh, I think my mom was watching it and I was like, oh, this is that really weird movie I saw with my grandma in the theater. And like I kind of, so I kind of stuck around and watched it and it was the opening scene when they're at uh, the apartment. Uh, when I realized that's what she was watching and I was like laughing along at some of the jokes and she would just kind of look at me and I was just like, am I not <laughs> supposed to laugh at that as well? What, was your mom upset about that at all that she had taken you to see that? Or was that kind of just an accepted thing? Because I could see that going either way. She probably figured I, yeah, I didn't understand what was happening <laughs> or anything. So it didn't really bother. And plus I, I've always been able to watch movies that I probably should not have been able to watch yeah since i was same. a kid um, like she of course she would give me like the look or kind of give me a the, the voice of like she didn't want me to watch it or whatever but she always did so i feel like that's a shared millennial experience we all watched movies way too early because i've talked to kayla about that i like you know everyone i've talked to has said i was watching this a little too young but i think it's because <laughs> our parents like our generation of parents just loved movies really like i think they just loved media mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's like i mean it could be like a latchkey kid situation where like they came home watched tv you know parents weren't home not supervising them so they don't really think about that because you know our our grandparents generation was a little bit more removed assuming that you know our parents are kind of gen x and then our grandparents are boomers but mm, yeah. it varies you know um, I also saw this too young. I, as I've said previously, I don't remember if it was Kill Bill or Pulp Fiction that I saw first. I know I was like 11 or 12, somewhere in that range. Um, maybe 10. I will say that I remember a few things about this movie when I was little. I was obsessed with John Travolta because I was obsessed with Grease. I watched Grease so many times that I wore out the VHS, which was a very like you know, 
a thing that my dad always brought up. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I loved John Travolta. I'm sure that that's one of the reasons that I wanted to watch this movie originally. Um, I remember as a kid, as soon as it makes the change, and you know, we'll talk about the beat by beat of film, but like as soon as it, it switches from Vincent and and their and his story into Butch's story, I lost a lot of interest in the movie. And so I was very because I haven't watched this movie since I was a teenager. I'm gonna be honest. Like I just haven't watched it in, you know, a decade probably. So when I went to watch it yesterday, I was like, am I gonna fall off this movie? Like when that happened? I expected that to happen. And I'm pleased to say that did not happen this time. <laughs> As an adult, I appreciated every single aspect of this movie and we can get into it in more detail. But I think the vignette storyline is a thing that you might have to mature into. And, you know, before we were we started recording, we were kind of talking about um, Bradley mentioned that this is like a movie that people either love or hate. Uh I think it the scales tip to love. Like I think most people love Pulp Fiction. I think most people regard it as Quentin Tarantino's like masterpiece, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I can I can see why if it doesn't hit you at the right time or you're just not in the right state of mind or whatever that the movie wouldn't work for you. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's it's definitely. Um... The, there is no middle of the road for this. It's like you said, I think it is universally loved. It's if, if you're a film lover, I feel like you just automatically love this movie for every aspect of it. You know, the, the, yeah. the acting, the writing, the directing, the, the music, um, you know, just everything about it. Like it just ticks all the boxes, even not being a Quentin Tarantino movie, just it ticks all the boxes of, yeah, of a good you, movie, of a good movie. Yeah. Um, that isn't, you know, like, in some people's eyes, ultra entertaining, meaning there's not like a lot of action or stuff like that. Um, it's, and I it think is, it has way more going on than Reservoir Dogs did, though. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the cast is a lot bigger for sure. Um, yeah. Okay, so we can get into it now. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of background on Pulp Fiction before we discuss like the actual content of the movie. Um, it was released on October 14th, 1994. It had a budget of $8 million, and this is what's insane. The gross of Pulp Fiction, $107 million domestic within the United States, $213 million worldwide, um, $9 million opening weekend. So it already made its budget back opening weekend. It was already successful opening weekend. Um, one of my favorite things to learn about this movie before I watched it, because I got to see it going into actually viewing it this time was learning that it was it was shot on 35 millimeter film not surprising tarantino is is going to shoot on film even back then but he actually um it's called 50 asa stock it is the slowest stock available to reduce all grain this is the closest thing that we have to 1950s technicolor and that's what he shot this on. And that's why if you go watch this movie right now, even if you watch it streaming, it looks crystal fucking clear. It's one of the most beautifully shot movies I've ever seen in my life. Like, I, it's unbelievable how crisp this movie is. I, I got the um, the 4K Blu-ray as a Christmas gift this last year. And I, yeah. you know, well, I watched it, watched it a few weeks ago just 
just to watch it. And then of course, you know, I watched it again for this. Uh, and just, yeah, I, I, again, my 4k TV is on the very low end, but nonetheless, I'm just like, just looking at people's faces, how crisp everything looks and everything. Like I said, even on the reservoir dogs one, um, everything is crisp, but you do get that film grain. And I, people, yeah, people feel like film don't like film grain because they think it makes it look blurry or lower quality. It's like, nah, that got to know. That's, that's the life of it. <laughs> no, I, I don't mind film grain at all, but I was just shocked at how good this movie looked. Like he, he chose this for a reason. He wanted it to look this way. And God damn, it was, it was worth every penny they spent on that stock. Did you, did you both watch it on streaming? I'm assuming. Yeah, I I watched it on Netflix. Yeah, um, and yeah, it was really clear. I I wanted to ask. I don't know if you guys know or if you have it in mm-hmm. your research, Lex. Do we know how old Tarantino was when he did this? Mm, I don't know off the top of my head, Bradley. Do you want to look? That um, up? So I'm gonna assume. Well, I'm gonna assume if this I, was released in '94, he they were probably shooting it in. Well, they probably could have been. I want to say he was in his 94. late 20s. Um, he was born in '63. So what is that? 31. He was 30, 31 wild yeah it's yeah. crazy like it's so it's it's young i mean to be that confident in terms of like I'm, i know i'm sure we're gonna get all into it but you know that famously the studio didn't want john travolta in the role and he had negotiated to have um you know final approval on all of the mm-hmm. casting choices as well as like final cut of the movie and so you know two and a half hours long as well is is long you know for a movie yeah. particularly in that period yeah because nowadays i don't think anyone would blink at a two and a half hour film i think it's become kind of standard to the detriment of filmmaking honestly <laughs> um i this movie does not feel like a slog but a lot of movies do at two and a half hours you know um alfred hitchcock once said that the you know the length of a film should not exceed the you know human bladder uh, that you, you should never have to get up and go pee during a film. And nowadays, you know, that has gone out the window. And I think films like this are kind of the reason. Like, you know, they they push it and it works. So other people think they can do it. But the, the fact of the matter is sometimes people get a little too precious <laughs> and they need to cut things down a bit. Yeah, I was going to say, it's funny that you mentioned the, the bladder thing because I did recently go watch... Uh... Lord of the Rings Return of the King in theaters and it was the extended edition so it was oh, almost 300 <laughs> it was almost 300 minutes and luckily it's a movie I had seen before because I had no problem I think I only got up once to go use the restroom but still I was like oh this is a movie I've seen plenty of times I don't care if I get up but yeah if it's a new movie I try my best to to wait <laughs> I do too I don't get up during a movie um unless I'm like just I I don't know I plan ahead <laughs> yeah but also like but also like you have coffee before you go sometimes and that already you're going to be going three times an hour for the next like three hours. Like, you know, it's really hard to plan that out when you're going to go see. Movies oh yeah, absolutely. Like, Espe- like you said, especially nowadays, like how long these freaking movies are. Um, I think Bo is afraid came out this week. I haven't seen it yet, but I think it's like three hours and change or something. And I'm yeah, like, I think it's right at the three hour mark. Nice. I'm so excited for that one. <laughs> yeah. Kayla is too. And I'm like, okay, whenever, whenever. Um, All right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the writing and the conception of this movie. So Roger Avery, we are going to discuss Roger Avery Mm. a lot in this podcast um, because this, I did not know about this going into it. I did not know anything about Roger Avery. Uh, Simon, do you know anything about Roger Avery? Yeah, yeah, I know he 
wrote Butch's storyline, right? And yeah, they won the Oscar yeah. together. I watched their acceptance speech earlier on YouTube, which oh, is nice. Oh man, I should have done that. It's like odd to say the least. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm, what? They don't speak it's... anymore. Uh, they, <laughs> they, they do what? the podcast together. They do now. Yeah, yeah. There was, I guess, there was a period of time where they were not. Uh, well, there was all. a period of time when Roger Avery was in jail. So <laughs> wait, what? He was in jail I for. See that. He was in jail for quite a while. Um, okay, I'm I, I'm I'm gonna look up his name because I don't want to get my facts wrong here. Uh, <laughs> so let's see. Oh. Okay, so on January 13th, 2008, Avery was arrested under suspicion of manslaughter and DUI following a car crash in California where a passenger uh, was killed. The Ventura County Sheriff's Department responded to the crash after midnight Sunday morning. Uh, he was released on bond. Um, he changed his, plea to guilt, uh, changed his plea to guilty on August 18th, 2009. And September of that same year, he was sentenced to one year uh, in work furlough, which is, I guess that's kind of cool, uh, and five years probation. However, after making several tweets about the conditions of his stay on Twitter, he was sent to Ventura County Jail to serve the remainder of his term. Fucking <laughs> oh, wow. Twitter. Fucking Twitter. He tweeted so... about it and then got sent to prison. There's a lesson yeah. for anyone listening. Don't tweet um, about don't tweet your while you're in prison. Or... Like, it, Talk about uh, entitled that you can tweet while you are serving your prison sentence. What the shit? So whoever Roger Avery's fucking publicity publicity team or whatever is is covering um, the Pulp Fiction trivia that I have consumed so much of, they are going through that shit with a fine tooth comb because they make him seem... I didn't read into him, like his own trivia and everything, but they make him seem like such a fucking victim. And now I don't feel bad at all. <laughs> I don't feel bad for him um, in this situation, even though it is kind of fucked up. Um, so Roger Avery wrote the first elements of Pulp Fiction in 1990. The intention was to make a short film. Tarantino and Avery wanted to make a short film. They realized that they could not get the funding for a short film because there's just not a market for that. Um, so then they decided they wanted to make a trilogy. One would be directed by Avery, one directed by Tarantino, and then the other by a third unnamed director. Um, this was inspired by the Italian horror anthology Black Sabbath from 1963. Uh, and basically, Avery wrote Butch's story. The Gold Watch was Avery's original, like, concepted story, conception story. Um, and <laughs> Tarantino made Reservoir Dogs, then after, while he was promoting Reservoir Dogs, taking it on the road, um, he went to Amsterdam to write the actual screenplay. Avery did go with him and, you know, contributed as well. Tarantino wanted to sell, um, tell separate stories with characters floating around throughout, which I think was a really, I'm not, it's not like it's never been done, but I think as far as like a really mainstream film, it was pretty groundbreaking at the time. Um, so in 1992, they went to Amsterdam, they wrote the script. That's why Vincent is talking about Amsterdam a lot within mm. the movie. That was written into it because of it. They came up with the screenplay and, uh, let me see when the screenplay was finished. Script was finished in January of 93. Um, <laughs> TriStar had like the first look at the screenplay and they called it too demented yeah, so I saw that they rejected it um um i don't, I don't know if we want it. 
it's up to you. I don't know if we want to say who the producers are of this movie, but I, I don't know if, if, if anybody's think, curious, they can go look it up. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I think we're going to have to talk about Miramax um, and the Weinstein's. We don't have to get into actual Harvey Weinstein stuff, but the fact of the matter is, when it comes to films from the 1990s, like Miramax is a is a studio that changed the game. And, that and funded a lot of fantastic filmmakers. And you know? they did all of Quentin's movies up until yes. the whole thing, which then he was when he went to Sony for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So yeah, okay. I just wasn't sure if we were gonna. I mean, no, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna shed too much light on them because you know terrible people but <laughs> yeah yeah i don't is the other brother terrible i don't know i don't care not a, oh god not uh, not as bad but i mean he's still he's still pretty pretty slimy right. as well <laughs> right um homages and influences obviously tarantino is always influenced by other films that's a huge part of his movies so we have uh jean-luc godard uh bond apart hopefully i'm pronouncing things right but it's french Whatever, fuck you if you don't like. <laughs> uh, that's from 1964. Deliverance from 1972. Mm. I've seen Deliverance once and never again. I will not do that again. That movie fucked me up. Like, I, no, it's, no. It's one of those ones you can appreciate the filmmaking and that it accomplished what it was supposed to do. Yeah. But then at the end of the day, you're like, I don't want to watch that again. <laughs> it's too effective. Yeah, yeah. Um. I would argue you can skip it if you don't want to deal with disturbing things, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, the glowing case element was taken from Kiss Me Deadly from 1990, or 1955, not 95. Uh, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, obviously, mm. that was an element of inspiration as well. Um, I definitely want to talk about the suitcase later, the MacGuffin of that. And everything but um and then is the ezekiel speech is from karate kiba or the bodyguard 1976 um that was kind of taken almost verbatim from that and then yeah i want to say he made like a tweak here or there for i don't know just to not completely plagiarize it or just just to give his own flavor on it i don't know in the original film it's playing on the screen in text and being read if i'm not mistaken oh wow okay um so it's done differently it's not it's not like the exact same way um as far as production is concerned like filming and production notes before we get into the actual film itself um lawrence bender once again bringing the script to studio so he brought the script to miramax Harvey Weinstein, um, piece of shit, RIP in prison. Just kidding. Okay. Um, <laughs> Diana Gutter. Um, he instantly loved it, though. He picked it up, and it was the first movie that Miramax completely financed. So this is this is what makes Tarantino's career, but also makes Miramax. They're so linked, and that's a really fascinating thing to me. And and as you said, Bradley, Tarantino had loyalty to that studio. I think because of that, um, and that's what makes it even even more sad that there's so many great films came out of this, so many great creators, and like so many people were abused by this system as well. And, and even that name is their parents, I believe, is the brothers' parents. It's Miriam and Max. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like it's, it's just uh... it just sucks that it started off with like such you know a, a sweet homage and sweet intentions and whoo yeah yeah. I think yeah. it's one of them things where you have to 
it's difficult that you have to try and see where the line is to separate the art from the you know predatory criminals that mm-hmm. were involved in it and knowing that a production like this or a movie employs or is a representation of like five six hundred people's yeah. work if not more you know and it's sad that one you know c word can uh <laughs> you complete... can say it on the show we don't care oh yeah oh, let no. it fly, i'm not let offended it the queen's english will not tolerate <laughs> that but you know it's uh it's sad that that one person that it can taint the everybody else's work and so i think yeah. it's fine to just say hey harvey weinstein fuck you you know yeah. forever and yeah you can just die in prison and that's you know even that's less than what you deserve or more than you yeah. deserve sorry but yeah. the uh it is really difficult with the rest of it but i think we still have to pay you know respect to the everybody else's efforts that went into creating it um but yeah it is a difficult line to tread yeah i think it's harder when it's like the creative that was the one that did the because then it's harder to separate it like with this it's a i personally think it's a little bit easier to separate it because it was the guy that put up the money for the film yes it would not have been what it was or even been at all if it not been for the money because these films are very expensive to make but at the end of the day like he's not the reason that it was that it was yeah you know yeah um on uh my other podcast we we kind of discussed about that like what a good and a bad producer is and uh, and being creative in their own ways and you know there's the ones that unfortunately feel like they have creative control because they're the ones with the money. Therefore they change things. They move things around. They kind of ruin the story. Whereas we think a good producer is you accumulate these very talented people and let them do their thing. Like you fund their creativity and let them do what they want. And on that end, I will say I, I'm pretty sure he, they were on that end of the things Um, as much as at least, at least this time around, who knows about later on, but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think that's why a lot of these early movies at least worked. Um, and then we have heard stories about like, you know, Wes Craven's Cursed from... Oh, God. Yeah, that's, like where we, guys, that's where we were talking about it on. You yeah. guys just covered that. Yeah, where the studio screwed up the entire film. Yeah. It was going to be something completely different because they stepped in. So, you know, that changed over time. But I feel like they did allow <laughs> Quentin to do his thing on this. And that's why it's good. Mm-hmm. That that's the same with Scream. You remember Bob, Bob Weinstein uh was gonna pull the plug on the whole movie and then mm-hmm. Wes Craven gave him the dailies of Drew mm-hmm. Barrymore's opening scene. And then when he saw that, he literally the quote was, Yeah, what the fuck do I know? Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Like this is good. Um and so that is exactly their role. I mean, what do they know? They're 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 the business end of it. And so I you're right. I mean, when you get to someone like R. Kelly it's a much more difficult situation right. because that's his voice. That's his words that he's penned, you know, mm-hmm. for, for the song. So it, it, you can't really, it's harder to separate the art from the douchebag where with this, right. I think it's much yeah. easier to separate the art from the douchebag. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is a, uh... Somebody who wasn't ever really in my playlist rotation, but he is definitely gone now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um, despite a couple of box office failures before this film, Bruce Willis was still the reason that they got a lot of the funding that they got, right? 
Um, Miramax raised over $11 million for worldwide rights and distribution and everything like that um, off of Bruce's name alone. They were just like, this movie's going to sell overseas because of Bruce Willis. So September of 1993, they started filming, which yeah, that's another thing. I'm like, he finished the script in January. Script is finished in January. They're filming by September. That is one like like you know how fast this is written everything it's just insane how quickly tarantino's career just takes off you know yeah there was i really wish i could remember what movie it was but there is there was some movie i remember reading the trivia of and it said like it went from it went from script to production to releasing all in the same year which is insane yeah <laughs> yeah that's that is so difficult to do yeah um, they they did that with Scream too. Sorry, just to yeah. keep on the Scream theme, but Scream yeah, yeah. Two was released in '97, right? So it was like one year after. They just did that recently with Scream Six, yeah, because Scream Five came out in uh, what was it? like January, February of 2022, and yeah. then this Six came out in April, so just barely over a year later. But still, they it you was know, fast. They were in production yeah. on the next movie while the other one was still in theaters. Like, come on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's and that's not, I don't feel like that's as common nowadays. I don't know if it's because of like the expense of films to make them. Like they, they kind of wait a little while to green light it or what. I mean, clearly it's you know it's it's a screen movie, so it's not like it's highly technical. Like you obviously couldn't do it with a Marvel movie, <laughs> clearly. Oh, well, yeah. maybe you could. Ask those uh, visual effects artists; they will tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um. So just some interesting interesting things for the pre production of this movie. Uh. The most expensive thing they spent the budget on, other than like paying actors, everything like that, was building Jackrabbit Slims. It cost $150,000 to build that restaurant, which is Worth insane. every penny. I mean, it looks great. I'm sure right. it wasn't a full working restaurant, but nonetheless, what you saw looked great. <laughs> Part of that was like paying cooks. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the costumes in the film were inspired by Jean-Pierre Melville, who is a French director who believed that clothes were symbolic suits of armor for characters. So they put a lot of effort in, just like Reservoir Dogs, putting a lot of effort into the visuals of the characters and having that be an extension of their character, you know, with their costuming, which I thought was really cool, especially considering it wasn't a period piece. Usually there's a little more involved with period piece um, costumes but for this one they Quentin treats it the same way that he would you know something that needs that much detail um, <clears throat> and right before the film premiere Tarantino convinced Avery to forfeit writing credit and take story by so that he could keep our namesake written and directed by Quentin Tarantino so that um <sighs> That's kind of the beginning of, a, I think, a little bit of shadiness <laughs> as far as the writing credits are concerned for this movie. But I was going to say, but they did, they, Simon, they both did win the Academy Award for that though, right? Like they both. Yeah. Did. Yeah. And to just to finish on that. So their speeches, it was like two, less than 90 seconds that they're up there. They both get up there. They come from different sections. Oh, of wow. The, like, you know, of the audience and the Oscars. Mm -hmm. They meet on the stairwell going up. They hug, go up. And then Quinton takes the mic first and says, basically says something along the lines of, 
you know, I'd been thinking all week and this is probably the only award I'm going to win here tonight. And I was thinking of all these things that I'm going to say and actually I'm going to say none of them. Thank you. And then go just walks off and leaves Avery there. And then oh Avery my says, God. he doesn't like completely leave, but he just sort of hovers over here. Yeah, okay. And then Avery says something like, uh, I don't know what to say, but I need to pee. Thank oh, you. Oh, yeah. I remember that now. So it's a little bit just <laughs> odd. I mean, that is that is I liked, so weird. I liked it, but it was just weird. A bit weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like they they didn't want to be on stage. <laughs> and, and and you know, it's their first Oscars they're at. I'm not going to say alcohol or drugs may not have been playing a part in their <laughs> attitude and mood for the night, but uh yeah. Um uh Austin say you should look it up. You don't even need to look it up, but uh Joe Pesci's win for best actor is amazing because he walks up there grabs it from the the announcer goes up to the mic and just goes thank you walks off <laughs> okay. i love that oh man i i think it just would have i think what we would what i was expecting anyway would have been because they worked in the video store together right so mm. bradley you mentioned the podcast they do now it's about them going through the, like the archives of the movie store that they used to work at and talking about the movies they used to recommend, etc. You just would have thought that they would have been like, wow, can't believe we, you know, we went from the dream of working in the video store together and we wrote this together yeah. and here we are. And, <laughs> you know, this is so cool. You know, thank you, John. Thank you, Bruce, for believing in us. Thank you, Uma Thurman. You know, you would have thought it would have been all of that, but it just was none of that. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah. not what was expected. I, I just feel like maybe there was just a lot going on that night. And like he said, the way things are going, I feel like this is the only award I'm going to get um, mm -hmm. because uh, Forrest Gump swept that year. Um, it did. I, um, I love that movie. Did it deserve Best Picture over this? Uh, biased opinion, I'm going to say no. Unbiased, I'm going to say also probably no. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like I was, I, you know, I, I have notes on the, you know, the awards for that year and Forrest Gump did sweep. And I think that's a great movie. And I think it's a really hard movie to make too. Like I think Forrest oh, yeah. Gump is a difficult movie to make and it should not work. Like it's one of those movies that on paper, it should not work, but it did, you know, mm. and sometimes best picture is not really the best picture. It is a time capsule of that year and that era. Um, mm. And I think that's what Forrest Gump was that year. I don't think it was necessarily that it was the best picture. I think it encapsulated what people were feeling. And um, I think there was a lot of optimism in that film. Uh, and, you know, a lot of like wholesomeness and stuff like that, that like, yeah, we, you know, we like the gritty Pulp Fiction and stuff, but I think that era of filmmaking just, that's, what people wanted for best picture, you know? And, and to bring up Saving Private Ryan again for the second time, the fact that Shakespeare in Love won over that for best picture is still just mind blowing. I don't get that. Have That's you seen insane. Shakespeare in Love though? I do have that question for you. I think I've seen it once. It's a pretty great fucking movie. I'm not gonna lie, is it's it very better, well done. Is it better than Saving Private Ryan? I'm not saying okay. that. I, don't, I, don't I thought you were saying it there, like no. you were no, John it. Like, I wasn't, but. <laughs> That audience that's voting, I mean, yeah. they're, they're probably going to choose a Shakespeare in Love over Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> but Spielberg won at the end of the day. That's still a big win. So, Right. Right. Yeah. I thought you okay. were saying it like it's, uh, you know, and John Travolta was like, it's a pretty 
fucking good milkshake. It's a pretty fucking yeah. good milkshake, yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't actually admit that it's worth $5, and that's uh, my thing. I'm not saying it's worth $5. I'm saying it's a pretty good fucking milkshake, <laughs> you know? Buddy Hottie is a shit waiter, so. <laughs> oh, my All God, right. yeah. <laughs> Let's get into the actual movie itself. Yeah, so this is, um, man. Yeah, so I, I, I said at the beginning of this one, I'm, I'm going to assume everybody has seen this, so we're not going to be as detailed, but I mean, every... Uh, if you haven't seen it, um, you're going to have to buy it in the States. <laughs> it's not streaming anywhere anymore. I did look at it up. I watched it on um, Bradley's Voodoo. Bradley and I share movies. Yeah, I've I've amassed a nice uh, digital collection, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I've also sent you some money to buy things sometimes, because I'm like, I'd rather <laughs> just have it be Bradley's collection. <laughs> Have to hop over to yours for just the one movie. <laughs> um, all right, so yeah, we over a black screen, we can hear a couple talking, and in the middle of their conversation, we open up and we just see the this couple sitting at a at a restaurant diner table, and they're talking about how they're going to. Um, well, he's telling her a story about um, about a robbery, right? And uh, oh God, it's it's so it's just. It sucks. It really sucks to for no one to hear the dialogue in this movie as you talk about it, just because that is the to me is the main selling point of this movie. It is, it is mm-hmm. the driving force. So to to uh, sum it sum it all up is just doing it such a disservice. Um, but yeah, so they're just talking. They're just talking about how they would do a robbery, and mm-hmm. as as they're talking about it, she was he says, um, you know, or even even a place like a restaurant, nobody thinks to rob restaurants. <laughs> and just on an impulse, they decide to rob this restaurant. Uh, we get the we get the classic line of them saying "I love you" to each other, which is "I love you, pumpkin," and she responds, or he responds with "I love you, honey bunny." Mm-hmm. And and we go into them pulling out their guns, yelling at everybody. Uh, this is by, uh, also this is played by Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer. And yeah, as he's yelling at everybody she says another classic line any of you fucking pricks move i'm gonna execute every last motherfucking one of you and we freeze frame and we go right to the title and we hear the song um oh god how do you say it uh i don't know it's like miserloo miserloo i'm not i it's a weird um it's a weird title to say Um, is it french it let me see i gotta i gotta actually see it in front of me now um while you're working that out, can I instantly on this first scene? Yeah. I have three. I have three separate points that I'd just yeah, like go, to quickly make. Go, go. The first one being that uh, she's calling him pumpkin, and in Reservoir Dogs, he was Mr. Orange, right? Mm. Uh, and that that is like the kind of level with Quentin that we, I think, as like his fans. That we give him credit for that might not have even been intended. Like I'm sure yeah, it was. I agree. But we, but we just think, but he is that detailed, and I love that. I love that. And there's so many other examples of that 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 I have where I feel like, oh, he did that intentionally. Uh, the second thing was we were talking about the awards and everything. I think that this movie gets misconstrued by critics and by people in general as glorifying violence. Well, when you actually look at it the whole point of the movie and what a lot of the characters are doing are they're trying to avoid violence in in particularly in this scene they're saying 
we don't want to kill anyone we don't want to be in a bank and have to shoot people you can you, you can rob a bank with a cell phone now and they're saying well if we do it here there's less here you know blah 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 and obviously we get more yeah. into that with samuel jackson's character later and that people are trying to avoid violence um and then the third point was that this is when watching it as an adult or in you know later life it is so much more apparent and hits the ear in an uncomfortable way of the amount of racism that is in this film like particularly straight from here in in this scene um talking about you know like vietnamese shop owners and, and things like that yeah and it's and that has not aged well at all like as it it makes me uncomfortable because a mm. lot of it is unnecessary like there's times later in the movie where we have um like zed and uh you know the other dude and the gimp we'll talk all about that i'm sure but <laughs> where it's like i'm not saying it's okay for them to be racist it's not okay for anyone to be racist but they are antagonistic so it's allowing us to hate them so that when they get their comeuppance later, we're like, yeah, fuck you. But with other some of these other characters, it's like, no, we're meant to be on side with you. And particularly Quentin himself when he's playing in the yeah. movie, it's like makes zero sense. I know we'll get to that, but I just wanted to point it out because that is in this scene. Uh, my free yeah. point, I ran over. No, yeah, I, I yeah we were saying that with Reservoir Dogs, just... In- instantly in that first scene there's so much there's just so much going on and there's also so much set up for yeah like i said how our characters are going to be and just yeah just all of that and it's it's just crazy how much he can accomplish in just a five six minute opening scene you know before the credits even roll yeah and i think and we will talk about i think we definitely need to talk about it more when quentin's character comes in because that is the most it feels the most egregious of all of them because his character is not, like you said, not supposed to be an antagonist or anything. Mm-hmm. But it feels like Quentin wrote that character just to say the N word. Like, and his, really, and like his that's, wife's it's, black, isn't it? His wife in I, the. It thing. feels like. Oh, he, yeah. It feels like he does that just to justify that his character is saying that. And I'm like, it feels like you just want to say it, you know? It, was, it makes it worse. It's like, well, you should know you should be educated to not be making these choices yeah. because you are in an interracial marriage so that there would be an implication that you would think well you're not racist we would assume uh, and you're friends with jules like as in you'd think that none of this would fly so Some it is people very think that gives them a free pass though like they do they think i'm you know, in this relationship, I have this friend or whatever. Like, that's the the whole, like, I have a black friend thing. Like, it's it's people, you know, using that as a pass when it's like, like you said, that should be all the more reasons not fucking do that. Like, that's right. weird. What is wrong with you? should be you, more, you know? more educated and more yeah. of an ally rather than, yeah. I was going to say, does it change your opinion that he, or your view on that, that he was originally going to play Lance instead? Um he was going to play the role of Lance, Eric Stoltz character, but he right. uh, he wanted to be behind the camera during the uh, adrenaline scene later, so he yes. chose to go for Jimmy instead. Uh, for but, me, but, it doesn't change my opinion on any like anything. But also, I but also Lance kind of talks that way also, yeah, so it kind of yeah. doesn't change Lance anything. Race, so. Racist as well. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. picked the two most racist characters in the well, other than like you know. Um, the cop and everything but like i i think yeah i just think like 
it, it you can acknowledge the genius of this movie while simultaneously going this is a really fucked up thing and it's a problematic thing that Quentin has this is not something that is just contained to this movie um and I think it's important to acknowledge it like that he has been criticized for his language use um when it comes to racial issues in films which I do understand the only one that has always just made me laugh is Django. They're like, you say it so many times and I'm just like, do you not, I get, I get this is a, in a way a fantasy film, but also do you not understand the time period they were in during that? Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think, but I, but once again, like, you know, there, there's a lot of fair criticism in that too, where they're like, why are you writing a story about, a slave like why i think it's okay for people to say why is that your story to tell Mm, i think that's a fair criticism and i think that that's a discussion that can be had especially you know it's not my place to to say that um to go into the details of that because it would not be my story either to tell you know Mm -hmm. but i think that it's a very fair criticism of his filmmaking and I, th- I understand him going fuck off and like just making like making his movies. You know, I, I get that at the same time. But um, I do think you know it's important to. I'm glad that you brought it up, Simon. That it's it's also it's not just you know it, it's it's basically anyone who's not white gets called out in this movie in some racial. Yeah, slur. yeah. It's really fucked up. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, beyond that, I do think this opening sequence is good. I will say that, like, when you think about the movie as a whole, the the beginning seems weird. It wraps up very well with the end. But, like, as I was watching, I'm like, those characters are so disconnected from this. He brings yeah. it around in a really oh, weird yeah. way. Yeah. But it does feel so completely disconnected where you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, And then at the end you go, oh, yeah, okay. okay. I, I love that connecting the dot moment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we it's it's Miser Lou by Dick Dale. Um, you anybody who has heard the famous like guitar riff from this will know uh, immediately what it is. Um, so the credits are just rolling, and then it sounds like a radio station changing, and we change into a uh, Jungle Boogie, um, whom I want to say is by uh, yeah, it is cool in the gang. I wanted to make sure mm-hmm. uh, it is cool in the gang. Um, again, another. Another great song, already very popular in its time, but still, uh, nonetheless, uh, another great song. And such a shift, almost. You get this very high-energy guitar riff going to, you know, just a nice little groove. Again, we have an amazing soundtrack. Like, oh, God. Who knows how to get soundtracks? This is probably his most iconic one, I would say. Um, Yeah, I'd agree. um, I do have... uh, I remember my mom had the soundtrack for this on CD, but I do have a special edition vinyl of death proof. Cause that is also a very good soundtrack. That's very like indie sounding, uh, bands in a way. Um, like I want you, this, I want this soundtrack on vinyl. I do. I need to get this one. Go to target. I think they have like a yellow one. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I just haven't gotten around to it, but yeah, I yeah. also just love the, the Uma poster. Oh yeah. Another, like, that another is, iconic. That poster. is like one of the best posters of the nineties. One of the best posters overall. That that is one when I have a room where I can actually put up posters as I as I'm like scanning behind Simon, seeing all the just cool memorabilia he has. I I almost stopped dead and I was like, is that a 
is that a jersey from Mighty Ducks 2? And I can see it is. God damn it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. If, 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 as soon as I can get posters, that is like one of the first ones that's going up in here along with like Alien 2. Um, mm. All right. So then we hear um, we hear a voice and it is John Travolta as Vincent Vega. And we open with, again, the famous, another very infamous scene of uh, John Travolta and Samuel Jackson just driving on their way to work. And they're having uh, a discussion about when John Travolta was over in Amsterdam, as we talked about uh, at the beginning of this. And they're having the conversation about the the metric system and that they don't, and uh, what they call, you know, what, what they call a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Amsterdam. Now, is, is that accurate, Simon? Is Would a quarter pounder be something you guys wouldn't know? I mean, you know from maybe like American culture, but not necessarily like... You know, N- not not here in the UK. No, it's cool. It's still called a quarter pounder. Oh, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But wow. I, in, in uh, we just we're just accommodating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that makes sense. Um, yeah. But I think in I'm sure that that's correct in like Paris and other places. Yeah. Yeah, that's and that's got to be a, a, a odd thing. Like growing up, going to like McDonald's or something over there when you you know you guys obviously you know don't uh, you know don't go buy pounds for for weight anyway uh so that's gonna be kind of a weird thing it's just kind of like i don't understand what this means <laughs> well we we do go by yeah. we do go by pounds but do we you? marry it up into stones so oh, 14, 14 pounds goes into a stone that's um right. but we also do grams and all kinds of things but i think the the best way to think of it is the uk is kind of like america's little brother um and we follow you blindly into wars and all these <laughs> other things and then but the rest of europe kind of see themselves as europe and so the uk yeah. is kind of like yes obviously we're in europe but it is it does feel different to the rest of europe it is more americanized than yeah than the rest of your Euro- the european countries yeah um so vincent is just talking about you know you know over there in uh, Amsterdam. In, in Amsterdam you can go into a McDonald's and get uh get a beer and he's saying I'm not talking about a beer no paper cup you can walk in there and get a glass of beer and he said uh oh you're talking about the movie theaters and he says and he goes in Paris you can get a uh you can get a beer at McDonald's and uh so yeah they're just talking about that and then he asks you know what do they call a um what do they call a whopper and he says I don't know I didn't go into Burger King <laughs> <laughs> I just love that that's how we end love- the scene we I, just I, yeah, ended on that I, note right there. Well, at least this portion of the scene. I like that he went to a McDonald's, but not a Burger King. That yeah. was too far. That one was like, <laughs> that's trashy. No, I'm going to go to McDonald's, but not a Burger King. Uh, uh, that's yeah. like a more realistic conversation. <laughs> that's what I like about it as well. Yeah. It's like, what do you call them? Oh, I don't know. I didn't go. And those are the choices that you wouldn't, that you that is unique to Tarantino movies, I think. <laughs> where in other movies, there would be an answer for it. But also these his movies and this one in particular is about the these are the scenes that we don't normally see you know like in reservoir dogs you didn't see the bank heist you see all the Mm -hmm. rest of it and like here like you said bradley we're just watching them on their way to work and in the hallway talking before they do the thing and these are the bits that you wouldn't normally include into the movie but that is what this movie is about and i love that it's such a unique premise particularly in that time period though heavily borrowed from other influences yeah yeah and and he he has said he has addressed that after this movie came out there were movies that obviously would 
heavily imitate his style and it would be called Tarantino-esque. And he's like, he's like, but what is that? What is even Tarantino-esque? He's like, is it? Uh, and somebody was like, oh, he goes, oh, it's it's usually people just talking about pop culture. And he was like, okay, but apparently they don't do it very well then. <laughs> if you <laughs> if you have to refer back to me for it, you know, he's like he's like everybody talks about pop culture, but apparently I just do it right. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, he just he was one of the first ones to do it on a like a large scale, and that's why it you know and became like, such a thing. And like Simon said, in such a unique way, it's these it's the bad guys. We're seeing them on their way to work, and they're talking mm-hmm. about McDonald's, and they're talking about movies, like you know. One of one of my favorite things that they say in this, and I wrote it down, was they said like we need to get into character. I think it was mm. Jules says that. And I'm like, that that is fascinating to me. The idea of they are hitmen and they they are playing a part. And I don't know if that's how you compartmentalize the violence of your job mm-hmm. or what. Like that's how I kind of view it, where it's like, I'm not actually doing this. Like, cause how else do you you know if you're a person who kills professionally how else do you like if you have any conscience do that separate it i'm playing a character i'm putting on this suit like they're wearing suits just like in reservoir dogs it's like they are they're putting on the armor then they're going in they're playing a character but the character is doing terrible things and i just found that incredibly fascinating yeah and and there's also an argument to be made of I mean, it just depends on your specific viewpoint on uh, ethics, I guess. But it's like you can also view some of these people as they're not bad people. They just do bad things. Um, yeah. You you can argue that, I mean, this opening scene might tell you a little differently. But, I mean, they work in the criminal underworld. So, most likely the people they are killing are other criminals and bad people. Like, it, we don't know a whole lot about this opening, the opening characters and if they are good or bad. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of a gray area right there. But... Yeah, you know, it's kind of a Dexter well, scenario. <laughs> the whole scenario of why they're going is because apparently one of the guys gave um, gave a foot rub. <laughs> like, that's that's the whole thing. You gave a foot rub to the wrong guy's wife. Yeah. You know, and so, that's it. So, yeah, we... So, yeah, they pull up to a building, uh, an apartment building, and we get the... Uh, again a classic tarantino trademark which is we see our view is as if we are like laying inside the trunk we're looking straight out up at them as they're getting their weapons together talking about how many guys are going to be in there um <laughs> i really like that as they're walking to the the trunk uh, i think jewel says like you know uh, we should have shotguns for this kind of scenario and and uh vincent is like oh you know how many how many guys you figure up there and he says uh see something like three or four and he goes is that including our guy and he goes it's possible and then you can see Vincent getting stressed out. And he just goes, "We should have fucking shotguns," and they slam the <laughs> slam the trunk. Um, so then, as they're walking into the apartment, that's when they get to talking about um, why they're there, why they're killing these guys. Yeah, and it's not justified. <laughs> There's no justification for ki- like I understand going and beating them up, but I, I don't know. But that, well, that that's that's not why. That's the yeah. um, they they've got the the briefcase but they're talking oh, correct yeah yeah they're right. talking about the other guy tony is it tony tony rocky, rocky. one right. of them was the guy that did it right no they're, no, they're, no, talk, it... they're saying this other dude that you don't ever see who's yeah. completely oh, off screen I, my bad but marcellus he... wallace did that to him yeah that yes. yeah awesome. right okay. because because vincent is talking about how uh he wants him to how uh marcellus wants vincent to take care of his wife and mm-hmm. and 
Jules puts it, you know, puts his fingers up to his head like he's making a gun motion and says, "Take care of her." And he said, "No, man, like just take her out, show her a good time." And that's when he says, "Like, oh yeah, there was this other guy who mm-hmm. gave her a foot massage, and and Marcellus got so mad he uh, threw his ass off a yeah. four story." building and he says and i think he even says like oh you know he talks kind of funny now or something like that <laughs> yeah um so that's that's just kind of showing the nervousness of, of vincent right away and just how he's kind of nervous about doing that job again just this most seemingly random conversation while these people are just on their way to on their way to to work um Okay, can I just add about the character thing as well of them getting into character what i think is is interesting you know what after the fact is that they've clearly done this before and it's clearly planned that uh jules is not only good cop but he's good cop and bad cop like he does all of the talking while vincent is kind of in the background Mm -hmm. and so i think it's also you know when we're getting into character it's like exactly like what you said lex as well about uh differentiating it between the two but it's also that okay let me be because he starts so nice, like you know, mm-hmm. we. Oh, I'm sorry, we caught you at breakfast. You know, yeah, it's yeah. Because so... they come in and they're, you know, like we're gonna have a burger. We're gonna, you know, um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I, I, I like because they get, you know, they get off the uh, elevator and they get to the door they're supposed to be at, and uh, they are there early too because um, one of them asks, "Oh, um, Jules asks what time it is and Vincent says it is 722 in the a.m. which like I said they're there early like they you know they're obviously fully dressed ready to go so either they've been out all night or they got up at 530 in the morning to get ready to do this something um, about having a burger at 722 in the morning just sounds disgusting to me there's that, something that was also uh, that's also a thing too is a lot of people are saying um kind of that same thing and they, they were saying well they probably didn't get up and go get burgers for breakfast they've probably been up all night doing stuff and so this is kind of technically their dinner in a way Mm -hmm. um but i do like when he tells them the time jules uh jules says uh you know not not quite time yet so they walk off to the right and we don't leave uh the camera doesn't move from the door and this is what i was talking about in reservoir dogs how we just watch them down the hallway like we're eavesdropping um and this is they just they just kind of talk about the uh giving the foot massage thing Mm -hmm. um would you give a foot massage to a guy? Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's again, just, just summing it up is, is, does it know, does it is know? Is a justice? foot massage inherently sexual? I bring this to the panel. Yeah. I, Definitely. I have never, I personally have never like received a foot massage from anybody. So I can't say no, nor do I think I've ever given one. So I've given plenty. <laughs> So you're the you're, the, you're not, the jewels in this scenario. I would scenario. not give a foot massage to anyone I was not having sex with. I'm sorry, it's just not. There happening. you go. There you it's have it. It's not happening. There it is. Uh, that's, yep. Yeah, that's true though. I also, like besides my wife, I don't want to touch no one else's foot. Like right, in any fashion. I don't think twice about about touching like Kayla's foot if she if like her foot's hurting or something like I'll be like oh yeah okay but like if it's if someone else came at me with their foot <laughs> yeah it, I would be like that's assault brother like I'm not no no absolutely not oh uh, if I'm ever if I ever visit I'm just randomly gonna be like Kayla said you're good at this and just throw my foot on your desk <laughs> I'd be like get the fuck out of my house <laughs> um so then at the end of the conversation this is when Jules says come on let's get in character and we cut to inside the apartment and we see them unlocking the door mm-hmm. we see this group of guys all scattered around this uh tiny apartment having their 
breakfast or dinner. Um, and so Jules is, you know, kind of saying like, oh, you know, he's kind of getting familiar with everybody in the room. And he says, uh, he says, you're okay. Okay. I'll, I'll talk about it when we get there. Um, but, you know, he points at the person sitting down at the table and says, you're Brett, right? And he says, I thought so. And then that's when he takes his, uh, he sees that he's, they're having breakfast and he asks, uh, you know, he says, what are you having? And he tells him, oh, they're having cheeseburgers. And he's, and he tells him, oh, from where? And he says, big, uh, big Kahuna burger, which is another, is, is a Quentin Tarantino company that he's made up and is scattered throughout all the rest of his movies. Um, which now that I think about it, I got to be on the lookout. Like when we watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I don't know why we didn't get a, retro looking big kahuna burger in that movie if we didn't i don't remember i don't think we do but how did that not come into play that would have yeah, been, real, that like been really cool i feel like i'm watching these movies through a new lens because of yeah. the podcast. so it's it's going to be interesting to see that yeah um, once we get to it um so jules takes a takes a bite of his hamburger his cheeseburger and uh helps helps himself to a very hearty drink of his uh sprite i think he i think he kills it yeah he I, does. I have to, this is my favorite line of the movie which Ooh, people yeah. uh, is when he's like what's this sprite sprite good and i love that because <laughs> and now again i think it, and i say that all the time to some of my friends sprite right good. good and yeah. the reason i think this and again this is probably giving him way too much credit that no one's ever thought this but at that time in the morning, the only fizzy drink, soda drink that you would want would be Sprite because it's fr- refreshing. Because the lemon, the lime, yeah. right? You don't want Coke. You wouldn't want Coke that early. Yeah. So, so you would heavy. Sprite? Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. You're right. That is a, That would be refreshing if you had to have a soda in the morning. Once again, that sounds horrid-like to me. Yeah. But, ugh, yeah. And it, yeah, and in the most Samuel L. Jackson way, asks him, you know, uh, may I have a drink of your tasty beverage to wash yeah. this down? <laughs> like, God that's damn, that's, Samuel that's... L. Jackson is so good in this movie. Oh Holy man, shit. Um, I forgot, I forgot how good the performances were. Like I said, it's been so long since I've seen it. The... I remember being a good movie. I remember, you know, what were my favorite elements off the top of my head, you know. But like, I forgot how fucking good this movie was. Um, yeah, I think yeah, this I think. is still the only movie that Samuel L. Jackson's ever been nominated for uh, for acting for. Um, I think that stands. Yeah, um, he, him, Uma, and Travolta were all nominated. Yeah, rightfully so for all of them. Um, yeah, Travolta should have won. I oh who oh um, yeah uh, Tom Hanks won that year probably. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I will say I do think Samuel Jackson probably deserved a Best Supporting Actor nod for Django because he was. He's pretty crazy and and terrifying in that movie. He's deserved like, a best best supporting or best actor nomination for a lot of films. It's weird that he hasn't been nominated again and again over the course he, of his career. It's so weird because he's technically an Oscar winner because he has an honorary Oscar, but yeah, it's yeah. it's it's weird. Um, so yeah, so they move on. So moving on from that, uh, I do like yeah again like you said this is this is Jules is front and center the whole time, whereas Vincent's just kind of like cruising around in the. The little kitchen area just kind of looking for the suitcase yeah um and so the reason why they're there basically is they they believe that they were going to brett and his company were going to try to rip off uh marcellus and take the briefcase uh and so as as brett is trying to weasel his way out of it um just out of nowhere jules just often and shoots the person just chilling on the couch which is so funny. 
it's funny, but also you got to think about it. Like how fucked up that dude was just chilling on the couch doing nothing. <laughs> Makes a point though. Uh, and yeah. again, we get another classic line. Of him so saying, much of this movie is really fucking funny too. Like yeah. it's oh yeah, the dark humor in this is is so good. yeah. Um, so after he shoots the guy on the couch, we get another classic line of oh I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? And so yeah, and so uh, they eventually get the briefcase out from the kitchen, and we get the trademark uh, as Vincent is opening it. We get the glow hitting his face. Um, what do you guys think is in there? Now I know Tarantino has been like, you know, he said it's just a MacGuffin. He said it's whatever people want it to be. There's rumor. There's you know theories that it's like um, um, the soul of Marcellus Wallace. Like there's you know crazy outlandish things. There's you know basic things like it's just probably just like jewels that are incredibly expensive and like make you go oh shit you know i don't know i i, I think i i don't think i've ever thought it was a i don't think i've ever thought of it as a specific thing it is just the thing everyone is after and what it's what it is is kind of irrelevant to the story because it absolutely is i was just curious <laughs> well no no i just, i mean like the briefcase is what is relevant what is inside yeah t- technically doesn't essentially doesn't matter because we, I mean, if you never learn what it is, how can you, you know, how can you play an important part? But yeah, no, I just, I just like that idea is just that plot device of people want it. Mm-hmm. What it is. I'm not going to tell you because really who cares? <laughs> just know, yeah. just know people want it. I, I read somewhere that um, someone had said it was the diamonds from Reservoir Dogs. Mm. And I thought that was cool because then it like, you know, connects the the universe together. Yeah, and that is something that if you opened it, you would be like, holy shit, you know, because they're be taken aback. Because, because nobody else really yeah. comments on the contents of it, except for towards the end, uh, Tim Roth looks at it and says, is that what I think it is? Yeah. And, and Jules just says, yep, and he closes it. So that's like the Which most. also makes sense because if people know that those diamonds are missing, mm-hmm. is that what I think it is? Yeah. You know, like that. Um, ultimately, like you said, it doesn't matter, but uh, it is, it is a really interesting thing. Um, and it kind of takes, it it kind of, um, takes Vincent's breath away, which I've found fascinating. Yeah. Because he, when he opens it, he kind of, you know, he's like smoking a cigarette, but like, he kind of like, he takes his, takes his drag and he looks in there and then just like, just pauses. Yeah. Yeah. He just pauses and then just, and finally, like when he blows out his smoke, it's like he remembers he needs to exhale because he's so just, uh, in a trance by whatever's in the in the briefcase and then i just like how jules is out in the living room still just goes goes vincent are we happy <laughs> and, and and vincent's just like oh yeah we are happy and closes it um and then this is when we again when we get into the classic again just have to sum it up because it's just too good uh jules and brett are arguing and they get into the do you speak english conversation just going back and forth because because they know that they were going to try to rip him off. And at this point, Jules is just kind of taunting them. But also, I think he's also getting fed up with him as well. Um, it, it does seem like he, they are in, they're being inconvenienced with their day. Like, hey, I, I get it's never explicitly said, but I've always gotten the feeling that they've felt like, hey, we had plans for today, but now we got to come and do this because you fucking people want to come and try to steal from your boss. So this is what we're doing with our day now. So that's kind of why he toys with them. But um, we eventually lead into him saying the saying the Ezekiel prayer Um, and I really like that so at the end of his prayer he shoots Brett um, and I do like that we're as we're cutting back and forth between seeing Jules shooting and and Vincent shooting we're not doing cuts we're doing like quick fade to whites 
in between them, mm-hmm. um, which was, a, again, a really interesting choice. I'm not, I don't know if it's just to give it more style or what, but I just thought that was kind of a... Was there some orange in that too? There might have been, probably like yeah, orange I thought there glow was like a, a little briefcase. bit of it. Maybe, I, yeah. I felt like it, I felt like it like fit the, um, like the font and the, the like all of the, the stylized choices he was making from the get-go with it, you know? Yeah, um... And, and talking about the briefcase thing again really quick, I do like that this seems to be the only um, type of anywhere near the realm of a supernatural element in a way because it's so stylized whenever people open that briefcase and it's got the glow coming out of it, you know? I just feel like that's the only uh, instance of some type of supernatural element to any of Quentin's uh, work that I can think of off the top of my head right now other than Kill Bill, but that's a whole that's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Um so we cut to black, and as we're about to fade in, we get a title card, and it is Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. Yep. Uh, we open on the back of uh, Marcellus, played by Ving Rames's head, and he's got a Band-Aid on the back of his head, which... Um, they is, never explain. It's is, there. Again, tying into the tying into the, uh, the briefcase thing, everyone thinks that, oh, his soul was taking out from the back of his head, and so that's... Yeah. You know, that's why he has the Band-Aid there, but... Uh, there's nothing else supernatural within this universe, so I don't really think it's that. I think it's just, you know, I yeah. thought it was interesting that that's a theory, but I don't think it's actually that. I, yeah, I think exactly. I, I, I heard somewhere that Ving Rhames had cut his head shaving, like in real life, mm. that morning, and he just came to set with it on, and Quentin was like, oh, no, it's cool, leave it, and that's mm. it. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's such an interesting thing because... I feel like if you were just to open up on the back of his head, your eyes are going to be kind of just wandering around everywhere, but you immediately see something out of place, which is the bandaid in your, so then you just kind of hyper-focus on it and you're focused on that one area of the screen. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just a nice little, just, yeah, just a nice little thing to, to throw in there. Uh, he is talking to uh, Butch played by Bruce Willis and they're, they're inside of like a nice little, uh, is it like a bar basically? I want to say. Yeah. Yeah, that, that bar is kind of a vibe, man. It's very dark, but like also <laughs> like smoky and very neon, uh, neon lit. Um, as much as I don't want to be in a room full of smoke, it's still, it's, you know, atmosphere. There's something about a cool bar, like, like I don't you I don't go to bars a lot. I don't drink a lot. Everything like that. But like we went with our friends to a local bar here, and it, it's just it's fucking cool. Like we were playing pool and stuff, and I was like, damn, this is a vibe. Like this is nice. <laughs> yeah, like I said, finding a nice bar is is really nice. Um, yeah, it should feel a little shitty. Like a good yeah, bar yeah. feels a little. The floor needs to be a bit sticky. Otherwise, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. You know, because everything's a little too pristine. It kind of comes off as like pretentious or up. But it's like a club. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget. We went to a bar here in town, and the city I live in is like almost half uh, half Mexican, a lot of Spanish speaking people, and so the bar we went to at that certain time had a lot of Spanish people uh, in there, and so they were playing a lot of uh, Spanish speaking music on the uh, jukebox and they wound up putting like five songs in a row on there. And so I decided to switch it up and I put five songs of system of a down after that. And everybody left. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's a really cool bar. Um, and we're introduced to Butch and I, I did have a question for you guys and I was wondering it. I feel like some things that I say on this podcast are going to be really interesting as we gain listeners and they're like film bros and they fucking hate me for not knowing <laughs> things. Um, and to which I say, film I don't care. Um, yeah. <laughs> but 
like okay so so he's having the conversation i'm skipping a, a little bit ahead in this mm-hmm. but like why does vincent seem to hate butch so much in this moment testosterone i i was wondering if like maybe he knows he's a boxer and gonna throw a fight for and like doesn't respect him for that i i was trying to to assess why this would why there would be this I think it's male genitalia, literally. I think it's penises. (laughs) Like, I think it's because they they just, they're both having this alpha male bravado, Mm -hmm. and that's what it is. And that is how a lot of insecure men are. Like, and most men are insecure, again, Mm -hmm. due to penises. Um, it's at the root of all of e- of all evil, uh, particularly with men. But that's what I would think. I don't know, Bradley. What, what did you yeah, think? Yeah, I know exactly that. One is good at one is very good at um, beating people up, and the other one is really good at shooting people. And it's just kind of uh, sizing each other up, kind of thing. Um, yeah, that that's just macho. That's all it is. Um, but yeah, so so they're talking. Uh, Butch and Marcellus talking. Marcellus is telling him to throw the next fight, and um, I'm assuming he's going to get a lot of money if he does that. Right? He's going to help chip in yeah. with that and all that. Um, can't I can't remember what round he tells him to throw it in, but he's like, "Yeah, you're supposed the to fifth. go." The fifth. Oh, he, he throws it in the fifth. Throws yeah. in the fifth. Yeah. Um, so at that time, we see Jules and uh, Vincent walk in, and uh, they are not in their suits. They are in very. <laughs> very casual looking clothing which we will come to find out why later um i was like why the fuck are they dressed like me in the summer this isn't right (laughs) and i really love that uh i mean we see more of it later on when they actually change into those clothes but i love that vincent is wearing a uc santa cruz shirt because Mm -hmm. santa cruz is where my grandma used to live and that is where we watched this movie was in santa cruz that was that was a nice little thing and for those of you that don't know what santa cruz is um if you've ever seen the movie us by jordan peele uh, that whole amusement park area is the Santa Cruz boardwalk. So, oh, cool. So you're just perpetually haunted by your childhood in various yeah. ways. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Are you guys going to do Jordan Peele? Has he got enough movies? Has he got three? I don't see why we, I don't see why we can't do like a little mini mm-hmm. season on that. Um, who knows? Maybe by the time we catch up to him, he'll have his, well, his fourth movie, I think, is coming out in Christmas of next year. Yeah. Supposed to be next year. Yeah, we haven't we haven't planned who season two is going to be yet, but Jordan Peele would definitely be on the list. He's, a, I mean, because he writes and directs all of his stuff, so I don't yeah. see any reason why we wouldn't cover his movies. They're so yeah. good. They're yeah. so so good. Yeah, so good. I love all of them. Yeah. Um, and I really love that. Uh, so when when uh, Jules and Vincent walk in, they kind of go to the bar and they're just BSing with the the bartender, and um, Vincent is kind of like arguing with Paul about. The, the bartender Paul about something and I just love that that uh the bartender just goes hey my name is Paul and this shit is between y'all <laughs> <laughs> like that's again another line that I I randomly quote to people and they even though they've seen Pulp Fiction so many times I feel like just one of those lines that always go over their head and I'm like oh, come on that's so good it's, and- it's really obscure like it is it, that's a good one to use um but I I probably wouldn't even pick that up honestly I, I'm pretty sure my mom has done that to me at a certain point and she, you know like who yeah. knows my brother and I arguing and she's probably just gone. My name is Paul and this shit is between y'all. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of iconic lines, the another line in that scene that always stays with me is when Ving Rames is like, that's pride fucking with you. It's so yeah. good. Oh so man. Good. And it yeah. comes back later as well. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yep. Fight. Yeah. Oh, when he's talking to Butch. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But he, and he makes a great point though, where he says, um, 
uh, pride, uh, it hurts, but it never helps. Like that's such a, that is such a deep line. That's also why I wanted to know how old Tarantino was when he wrote this, because Mm -hmm. no, like a 25 year old is not writing that shit. They don't understand that. You haven't, you haven't got your pride yet. I mean, for me anyway, it's like you haven't developed that. You know, you're still impulsive. You don't have the frontal lobe of your brain yet. You know, it's like that's yeah. like a someone that's experienced shit kind of uh, a point and a saying. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think this is when um, I think is when Vincent eventually goes over and talks to Marcellus. And I'm pretty sure they're just going over. I think they just go over semantics of. Uh, right. How he's going to entertain Mia. Entertain Mia, which is. Yeah. I think that is the next scene we move. I believe that is the next scene we move into. Does uh, he go pick up the drugs first? Oh no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. he you're picks right. up that, the drugs first. That, yeah, which right. because that that play obviously plays into the Mia storyline too, but also like you know, it's interesting to me that Vincent is an addict because he he plays shit so cool, and you he doesn't give. I don't know if he's in the earlier stages of addiction where you think you have it under control and you think everything's okay, but like he's, you know, he's going to this, this, you know, house to buy, um, heroin. Which, I mean, I know, I know nothing about heroin use personally, so I don't know if that is something, if you can constantly pay for it, if it is something you can almost treat like, I guess, kind of like smoking in a way, like, you know, I go, I'm getting a craving. I can go, I can go do a little bit and go about my day. Like, I don't know if that's a thing or not. I think it, I think it's, just like any drug, alcohol, whatever, it depends on your dependence and, and stages of addiction, really. Like, but it's, it's a pretty aggressive drug that you're going to crave again. Literally. Yeah. Because I, I feel like anytime you see heroin depicted in movies, it's always, they inject themselves and then they do the whole falling back and they're there for the next 14 hours. So I'm like, how is he? Cause we're going to see he He's probably has a very high tolerance. Ex- that, that's what I mean. Point. It's like, yeah. can, can you just do a tiny bit at a time? And that's what, <laughs> that's what helps you keep your addiction at bay. I, yeah, I don't know. I do. I do. Like I did read trivia and I'm going to bring up this trivia just a little bit early in regards to um vincent's drug use and how travolta yes i love yes if if it's if it's what i think you're gonna talk about yeah (laughs) so travolta was on inside the actor's studio yes and he was talking about like the hardest part for him to grasp about the character was the addiction because he doesn't he doesn't suffer from addiction um so he met with tarantino's friend who was a recovering addict from heroin and he was saying that heroin is like being plastered on tequila and lying in a hot pool so Travolta and his late wife, Kelly Preston, he went and told Kelly Preston, he was like, I'm going to do this so that I understand what this kid, and like, they did, like, they did it together. Kelly Preston also did that with him to get, like, prepared to be a heroin addict, which I thought was very interesting and gate, because I've also, I'm not like a, a drugs person, um, and, you know, I was, I have no concept of like that, what that would be like. Um, so I would feel the same way. I'd be like, well, how am I supposed to get into that character? So it's really interesting. That he's like, I'm going to get fucked up on tequila. And yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think he said they yeah, they lined up, they just lined up some shots on the edge of their hot tub and yeah, they took their shots and then just relaxed on it. And I think he said, even then the Quentin's friend said, when that point comes, you are, you are just scratching the surface on what it's like, which is, Ooh, I, I would just say that there's, um, I'd heard that story before as well. I love it. I think it's great. And I love that she did it with him. 
there there's some there's it's called being a functioning addict so there are people yeah. there's people that are like have high powered jobs that are like lawyers and solicitors and things that are have this double life of being a functioning addict i don't know how how people are able to maintain that but um and you know i think it's sad is it sad yes it's sad yeah it's definitely damaging, sad. damaging their body and obviously you know all the rest of it but uh yeah i think it is possible i think something that i never i didn't appreciate until i was older uh in this movie it, and i think would just go over most people's heads um if you're just a first time watcher or if you're not paying that much attention is the the difference the baggy and the balloon bit right the heroin mm -hmm. goes balloon and cocaine goes in the baggie and that's what leads to Mia later having the overdose because she thinks it's cocaine because she's been doing cocaine all night and she snorts yeah, a he's out of her. he's out of balloons so he's like I'll just take the baggie it's fine right so he you know and but why I didn't like know before this movie like, yeah right I didn't know that either but what I think is so good about it is most directors and filmmakers would have to ram it down your throat as an audience so that you've that's been seeded to foreshadow something happening later but tarantino doesn't do it he doesn't feel the need to explain it to you mm -hmm. and i think that is something that i love about his movies it's like if you don't get it you don't get it, it that's yeah. what it is but also it doesn't affect the story if you don't get it because you just think well she's just overdosed it doesn't really matter but if you want to if you look into the detail of it it's all there for you mm-hmm yeah, I was gonna say yeah. I I did find out in my in my research that yeah, bull, uh, bull, uh, heroin goes in balloons because most people need to transport it somehow by either swallowing it or other ways. Um, and Lots obviously of shoving things up their ass in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> so thing. so obviously, if you were to swallow like a thin plastic bag, that's obviously gonna break open inside you, and you're probably gonna die from an overdose. Whereas a balloon, not get, it's not gonna get eaten through, and it's gonna come yeah. out of you eventually and you'll be fine so that's i think that's where that started um but yeah like you said can um, you snort heroin though isn't that a thing you can do i'm, I'm pretty sure the <laughs> effects are how do i google that without going on like an fbi list <laughs> <laughs> i do everything in incognito mode regardless of if that helps or not um but yeah i mean i know you can it i'm pretty sure the effects are nowhere near as uh, it up. as strong um but like you said i do like that it's not rammed down our throat about it it's it's a line that's said, not even, we don't even, we don't even see that really. It's a line that's said, um, and then you do witness Mia doing cocaine several times. And then later on, when she is wearing Vincent's coat, she pulls it out and you, your brain immediately goes back and is like, oh shit, that is not yeah, yeah, what it, she thinks it, it is. Like panic. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, 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 this isn't a, a spoiler or anything, but I, re I recently watched <laughs> Evil Dead Rise and it's so funny because again, the plot device thing, I was in the theater. There's a kid in that movie who was a DJ, right? Like he likes just messing around with records and whatnot. Well, the, you know, in all the Evil Dead movies, the voice that does everything is on like a reel to reel player. On this time, it's on vinyl. And I went, ooh, plot device. Like I literally said that out loud because I was like, of course the kid is a DJ. How else are they going to play these fucking vinyls? So, <laughs> so it, I, I said it out loud because I was like, okay, that's kind of glaringly obvious there. But I just if thought, I'm in a movie theater with you and you go, ooh, plot device, I'm leaving. I don't care what point of the movie we're in. I'm going to be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I'm going to be like, we're not because watching it, movies anymore. Cancel the podcast. Done. That was not very subtle at all. I was like, oh, that is yeah. 
that's a very clear plot device right there. Um, my, my dad did that in the cinema. It was me, my mom, and my dad <laughs> for the sixth sense. About 10 minutes oh, in, Bruce Willis no. comes on, and my dad goes, he's dead. And we were, everyone was like, <laughs> what? And then <laughs> there he was. He was dead. Like, thanks, dad. Appreciate it. Did he know That's that going fantastic. in? Or no, he was just guessing? He just, yeah, he just called it in like ten minutes. Oh, I'm in. sure plenty of people did. Like it caught most of us off guard, but that doesn't surprise that, me. That doesn't need to tell his whole family about it though, Lex. <laughs> I didn't know. I was like ten. I didn't know either. No, I didn't either. I, I, I have done that. I have ruined uh it's funny, good also talking about M. Night Shyamalan. I did that with my mom with Unbreakable. Spoiler alert mm-hmm. for anybody who hasn't seen Unbreakable. She asked if I had ever seen that. This is a long time ago. She asked if I had ever seen that or no, the other way around. She ruined it for me. I asked if she had seen it, and she was like, oh, is that the one where Samuel Jackson turns out to be the bad guy in the end? And I was like, I don't know. That's why I just asked you. <laughs> I guessed something like that. I think it was a TV show that Kayla and I were watching, and she was like, she was kind of like, for future reference, don't do that. <laughs> she was like, don't tell me. If you, if you, And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. That makes sense. Because yeah, she was tr- kind of like, God damn it. <laughs> I tried, because people always say like oh did you guess the ending this and that and i was like i was like no because i'm not trying to actively do that like i'm just trying to process it as yeah, it's being presented it. to me you know so and even when i do try to guess that i am wildly off so i just i just don't yeah. do it. um so uh, yeah um yeah he gets he gets the drugs from eric schultz er, yeah schultz. he gets the drugs from eric schultz this was again this was supposed to be quentin tarantino but he wanted to be behind the camera for a scene uh, featuring Lance coming up later. Um, and we do get, actually get a really cool um, kind of montage of, uh, because he asks, uh, Vincent asks uh, Lance if he can shoot up there. And so we get this very close up of a needle going into an arm of the heroin on the yeah. spoon. Um, and actually a very cool effect of what's supposed to be blood going into the syringe. Um and then shooting in i mean you don't see where the in that specific shot you don't see where the needle is so i'm sure it's like just in a fake bag of blood or something like that but it's nonetheless just, it's still still a really cool it's a cool effect gross. yeah <laughs> um and then when so after this travolta is driving to driving on heroin dear god yeah yeah um and I, one of the things I love about this movie is like driving this like sequence is they just are playing the background like the image of someone driving like they do in old movies and that perfectly fits the like pulpy exactly um, yeah. style yeah because they would just put a uh, put up a white screen <laughs> yeah behind them and just project from from film they would just project mm-hmm. yeah just like driving b-roll behind them which is apparently i found out the other day they did that with um tom cruise and eyes wide shut that shot when he's walking down yeah. the sidewalk he's on a treadmill he's on a treadmill and that's a yeah they projected that behind him i was like which now that can... movie is fucking fascinating to I, learn about the production of that oof, movie. God, it's, it's a yeah. mess. They were they shot that for like three years or something like that. It was supposed and to be like a five months shoot. Editing was like eighteen months or something like that. Oh yeah. my god, it was a mess. I think the story is more interesting than the movie. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> um, so Vincent shows up to Mia's house, and uh, we see her kind of. She's kind of at the tail end of getting ready. Of course, she's um, of course she's doing cocaine. Uh, Vincent walks up to the door and is let in, and she's just talking to him through the intercom. And uh, I just like because it's now obviously a classic like GIF and meme of of uh, John Travolta doing the wandering around thing, like trying to look, <laughs> trying to look for yeah. the uh, trying to look for the the intercom, and so he finds it and 
you know, she says, I'll be, I'll be down in two shakes of a lamb's tail and you know, you can fix yourself a drink. And I just like how he pushes the button and just goes, okay. Like so robotic. I just, yeah, he's drugged up. The, well that, and I feel like he's yeah. just, he feels, well, that's probably not helping too, but I just feel like he also just feels awkward talking through the intercom. Um, yeah, yeah it was, is. I was I, looking, I guess this is kind of like the first big role for Uma. Um, she had done a lot of movies yeah. before this, but I feel like this is kind of her breakthrough, right? I think, I think so. Oh, like definitely. 20, she's like 25 or something. Like as mm. well, like young. Around 94. She was think, born in 70. So 24, yeah. Yeah. Damn. And because if you think like John Travolta, Bruce Willis, Samuel Jackson, they're all probably going into their like uh, early 40s, maybe late 30s, early 40s. So they've got a good like 15 years on her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Mia eventually comes out and I think she says, let's, I think she says, let's go. And of course it's all we see is her feet this whole time. This is uh, one of the first instances where we will be talking about, um, Quentin's foot fetish. I complained in the first movie about not having any female characters and, from this point forward, I'm going to complain about the foot fetish thing because I'm like, <laughs> I don't I, listen. I'm not judging the foot foot fetish. You do you. I don't care, but I don't really need to see it this much. I don't need to be involved in your little perverted at, reindeer games. Like, uh, no. I feel like know? at a certain point, it almost became a joke, and he knew it. Um, yeah. I can see that too. Not that he was leaning into it, but he kind of knew like, oh, well, I'm going to insert this shot in there and I know it's going to get a laugh just for that reason alone. Um, it's funny. I feel like people have asked him about it and he's like, he's very casual about it. He's not like very defensive or anything. He's, he's yeah, he's just very casual when he responds about it, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, so they pull up to the restaurant. It is Jack Rabbit Slims. And um, so good. This is my favorite part of this whole movie. The, this there, whole, whole Jackrabbit Slims thing. Every yeah, the the entire plot of Mia and Vincent, mm. I think, is the peak of this movie for me personally. Which is why I do understand your your kind of tuning out when you get to the butch yeah. section because it is a much slower burn than um, this section is. Um, it, it takes it, it takes a little bit longer to get to the excitement of of his section. Um, yeah. So yeah, they pull up to Jackrabbit Slims, and it's always bugged me because for some reason she calls him a square, and she makes the motion with her hand, and it it does like an animation, but that animation is a rectangle. That's always bothered me. <laughs> it's a small <laughs> thing, but that is a fucking rectangle. That is not a square. I don't um, like that. I yeah, like that's that. always that's always bugged me. I was like, come on, man, you're a man of details. You could have fixed that. Uh, so yeah, that, they go into that that's this is the sorry to interrupt you this this is the uh the first instance of like the elvis man you know you're either an elvis man mm -hmm. or a beatles man and so i I really like that because oh that's I, a good question do you guys consider yourself any of these well you have to be one right you, you if, that's that's the thing you're either elvis man or a beatles man i mean honestly i am neither i don't listen to either or anything but of what I have listened to and I feel I enjoy more than I've heard. I will say I, on that end, I will, or aspect, I will say I'm a Beatles person. <laughs> well, I, I also, Lex, Lex wants to kill me for saying that maybe. No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> I, I love well, the Beatles. <laughs> okay. I asked my wife, cause I watched some of this with mm -hmm. her and I said, what, which one would I be? And without blinking, she's like, you're your Beatles man. And it's not to do yeah. with anything to do with whether I like the music. Cause I prefer Elvis's music. I'm sure. But if I was to fit into that category, then it would be, I would be, I would, 
be more at home, I think, in the Beatles than in as Elvis. But there you go. I would. I'm actually gonna text Kayla right now and ask her because I like the idea of our spouse answering this for us. I think she's gonna say Elvis. <laughs> I am. I'm almost certain. Well, I think Victoria will probably tell me like you're neither. Like you don't really care for either one. I was like, yeah, but if you had, to, she might say Beatles. Uh, I'm not sure though. Yeah. It's a cool it's a cool thing that then carries on because then Samuel Jackson's called in Tim Roth Ringo at the end and so like his the yeah. Beatles guy. So <laughs> it's uh yeah. yeah, it's nice. Um, Everything about this set, this concept, I wanna go to this restaurant. I want to everything about it is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you oh. would want to book a car as well. You would want to be Oh in god, the yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because they, they have, yeah, because we, we get a nice... <laughs> Kayla said, what on earth does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> Did she not watch Pulp Fiction with you? <laughs> she watched it with me, but I think she was on her phone and stuff. Uh, she was like, okay, we're kind of, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, we kind of get this this kind of uh, longish take and we, we're getting a whole view of the entire restaurant, which I'm glad that they kind of did this take where we were kind of like walking through the door and you almost quite literally get a tour of the whole place in one shot, which is like... This is where we spent the most money on. You're going to see every fucking square inch of this thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can either sit at a regular table or you can book a car where, it, yeah, it looks like you're sitting inside a car and they have the table in front of you and everything is surrounded by a giant circular stage, which is just awesome. Um, they have people out there playing. I think they have people. Are there people out there playing uh, like a band or anything? Like I can't remember now. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. yeah. I, think they, I, think I think there's so. somebody up there performing. Yeah. So they get to their car and uh, Buddy Holly is their waiter who is played by uh, Steve Buscemi. Uh, I want to say he was supposed to have a bigger role in this. I can't remember who, um, but he mm-hmm. couldn't. So he just had to, he just came down for the day, knocked, knocked this out really quick and that was it. Um, I can't recall who he was originally supposed to be, but yeah, I think he might have had a much bigger role, but couldn't do it. Um, so then we get into the, uh, we get into the them ordering their food. And so the food they're ordering is like when he's when he's ordering the milkshake or when she's ordering the milkshake um he says you know do you want that martin and lewis or do you want that amos and andy which both of those are yeah both of those are famous uh white comedians and black comedians meaning do you want that vanilla or do you want a chocolate which is again oh, i didn't know that yeah again it was yeah like, again, yeah it was there, even this was racist? a racial i was a like, racial thing um also i never knew that that was steve buscemi until I was watching this yeah. and then and then I went wait a second is that Steve Buscemi and I was like focusing on the movie and Kayla was like I'll look it up she like looked up she's like it is it is kind of hard notice that it is kind of hard to notice because he's got the glasses on he's got the weird hair so I mean and, and it's very dimly lit in there so I mean I understand if you yeah I understand if you miss it um uh yeah that that's another weirdly unnecessary racial thing that you're just like what the fuck <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like it's is supposed that a- to be funny but I don't I mean it's yeah, it's, it's both not super funny and hasn't aged well and also doesn't make sense to anyone who doesn't know that some of like some of those comedians were white and some of them were black like yeah and it's kind of like is that an homage to these people or is that a no. racial dig at them like <laughs> i don't think it's i don't think it's a dig either i think it's a racial joke and yeah. it's not it doesn't work like it's yeah. just you know whatever yeah i get that um there's a lot of like talk here about the five dollar milkshake and now I feel like if if we were to all go get a milkshake right now, it would be at least five dollars, right? Oh, I, oh yeah. When I when I was in uh, 
when I was in San Francisco this this past uh, weekend, um, we stopped off and I really wanted to, because I had been already been craving a milkshake for weeks at that point. So we stopped at a place to rest and I got a milkshake. Mm-hmm. It was $10. So Holy fuck. <laughs> yeah. So, but was at least it, it was, good, was it a pretty good milkshake? It was pretty, I don't know was if it, it was, fucking good? <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know good. if it was pretty fucking good because it was just good or because it was satisfying my craving i had so damn now i want a milkshake yeah I, I i got a chocolate banana milkshake and it was pretty fucking good yeah so, so. Uh, it, yeah. it would have been it would have been like eight or nine dollars but of course that banana bumped it up a dollar or two <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay san francisco okay yeah, not yeah, no necessary um <laughs> and bananas and i do really like this when um he's just kind of rolling his cigarette and she's just kind of sitting there and she talks about don't you just love an awkward silence when you don't you don't feel the need to fill the gap when you both can just shut the fuck up and take it all in for a second. Um, but she said it was she was saying it was a comfortable silence because there was no awkwardness in it. She just liked that they could both just sit there and be contempt in that moment. Which I don't know. It's just a it's a nice little moment of. And that's and she says that's how you know you found someone that you actually care about that you can just sit in silence and be fine. Yeah. And I completely agree with that. Like, like there's no panic or any weirdness or anything. You can just exist with someone. Which <clears throat> do you guys think that was supposed to be a flirtatious moment or do you, or just a bonding moment? Like, hey, this, you know. I think everything that they every interaction they have is coded in flirt flirtation. Um whether it's meant to be flirtatious, I don't know. But mm. I think they're playing they're they're also playing the idea of like is this going to get Vincent killed is like like this is like a red herring kind of thing like they think you know, mm. this is going to be the thing that fucks him up um and it's also I think playing into the idea of like oh what's this girl doing is she just like getting all these guys fucked up because she's messing around and stuff? like I think it's just kind of playing with the viewer's perception of is he actually a good guy and not going to do something about this is she actually like gonna betray her you know like it's a whole thing i whether or not it would have actually been something else had she not overdosed i don't know like i i think it's i think there's definitely a lot of chemistry between them mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I mean that's at very least supposed to be the implication is that there is a there's definitely a connection between the two of them yeah i i i think i think that you've got it like right on there that it's that it's to lead the audience to think that there's something going to happen and then obviously he has the the chat in the mirror to be like you're going to go home and you're going to jerk off and that's it that's the end of it (laughs) which is great and and when he comes out and she has already overdosed he starts saying you know hey i'm gonna have to go and then he notices but um i think when you watch it back that it's more that they just have a genuine connection like you know you can have like a good spark with someone and it does it's not romantic it's just that you've got a good you've got a good synergy or you're uh you know you sort of flow together um so i like the idea of it not being romantic and it's just that they get on well um yeah i think that the tension between them is interesting but i don't think it yeah i agree i think they just had like uh maybe even it's just that both of them recognizing the addict in each other and like mm. you know that being a connection that's there and and i like you i like that you said it's kind of a it's kind of a red herring like oh are they gonna get in trouble yeah. with marcellus and all this so you're thinking that 
but then we divert into the OD thing and yeah. it takes a whole nother direction, which again is a, is an, another great um, part, a part about his writing. Um, I don't know if or when we will cover Kevin Smith on here, but I do like when he was writing that movie red state, I will never forget. He has said, which I, anytime I'm going to attempt to write something, which is not very often, I like his philosophy on it, which was he had his basic outline. He'd write a scene anytime he knew where that scene was going to go. He's like, the audience is going to know. So he stopped, stopped, like the for, opposite. stopped for the day, came back and was like, okay, what's the opposite of this now? Like, yep. you know, so it's, it's like, okay. I mean, I get that's oh, might put you on in a, in a little bit of a box and you got to work around that, but Hey, you know, at least you're going to get a, a totally different story than what you or the audience is expecting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then one of the most iconic scenes is in Jackrabbit Slums before we get to the, you know, more of the OD part, which is the dance the uh the twist yeah I, I really like because yeah the announcer comes up and says oh yeah it's time for the dance competition and um she tries to get vincent to dance and he is refusing but i and i just love that she and everyone's goes, like you're john fucking travolta i know you don't refuse <laughs> and it's funny too because quentin was like oh you wrote that scene specifically because john travolta's it and he's like no i already had that fucking scene written before i even cast john travolta so yeah. you know get off my back um i i do like that you know he's refusing but and Mia is just like, um, I believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and show me a good time. And it's like, yeah. like, and this is how you do it. And he immediately is just like, all right, and just gets up. And yeah, they they get up and um, oh shit, I know it's Chuck Berry. What is the name of the song? It is uh, why am I blanking oh, on it? I can pull that up. Um, well, why you work that out? My uh, my wife and I went as Vincent and Mia. Uh, for Halloween one year. And oh, then, that's awesome! And then of course oh, had, to, had to perform this um, to the best of our ability. But uh, yeah, I'm sure many people have gone as them for Halloween before. It's you never can tell. Yeah, there you go. It's yeah. and it's not even on the soundtrack, which is oh wait, it yes, is. Yes, yeah. it is. Okay, yeah, it is on there. Um, yeah, we we already forgot to mention the the needle drops that were before this. Um, the scene at the the bar after the opening at Brett's apartment has uh, "Let's Stay Together" by Al Green. Mm-hmm. Um, God, there's so much good music in this. Such a good in, song. Uh, when we first get to um, Mia's place, it is playing "Son of a Preacher Man." Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, the needle drops in this are so good. Um, so yeah, they do the dance competition. Um, I want to say all their dancing was improvised. There was nothing. There was nothing planned. I think I think Quentin just told them to go for it, and I'm sure he made tweaks along the way. But, uh, but yeah, he said I mean it. they have to do the twist, so like they have a baseline going. Yeah, into it, you know. Yeah, but I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure they had a baseline. Uma was like apparently very nervous about doing this because it's John fucking Travolta, and he was like, "Get out of your head. Don't worry about it. Just yeah. fucking dance." <laughs> and and as good as it is, I feel like it's he's nowhere near his uh, Saturday Night Fever type type of routine here it's 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 pretty subdued and by comparison so yeah <laughs> um so we fade out and it's funny too that i feel like that is the proper way to end this scene is you enjoying them watching dance and we just fade out as opposed to seeing it end like mm-hmm. the song ends you see them finishing like i don't know i feel like the proper way was to just fade out in the middle of it all yeah um so we cut we fade back into mia's apartment and they are still they're just riding the high of winning because she does she toss him the trophy or he tosses her? One of them tosses the trophy to another one. And I just like that. They're, I think she tosses it to him. Yeah. And I just like that. They, yeah. you know, they enter the apartment, uh, they enter the house and they're both still dancing with each other. Just again, mm-hmm. just riding the high of winning. Um, 
and then they again they have a moment and he's he says like oh is that what you would call a awkward or a comfortable silence and she just goes i don't know what that was which <laughs> again that was definitely a moment like that yeah. was another one of those yeah. moments they had um and i like how you know i think she says like uh, does she say i'm gonna go no i think she, uh, or no he goes to the bathroom in this just, time she powders her nose at the jackrabbit oh yeah she goes and does to the that. bathroom this time and does that and that's where he's he's like you're gonna go home and jerk off and not do anything yeah. <laughs> I just like how she she's going to go put on uh, another song and he just goes, I'm going to go take a piss. And she just goes, that's more information than I needed, Vincent, but go right ahead. <laughs> that's that's me with guy friends. I, I, I'm i like, I don't need to know that. Just go. The only person I feel like I tell specifically what I'm going to do is my girlfriend. Everybody else that's just like, may I use your restroom? Like, that's it. Like, Oh, I like, and you know, it's one of those things where, you know, would Kayla be on the phone with her friends or whatever and her friends like in the bathroom on the phone with her and I'm like, oh my god no what <laughs> no I don't do no, that no I don't do that absolutely not <laughs> um so yeah so Vincent's in there giving himself his little pep talk and then that's when he says you know you're just gonna go home and jerk off and that's gonna be that um we cut back to Mia and she is uh oh a uh, needle drop time again um this time it is, oh, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon by Neil Diamond. Oh, my God. That is the perfect song for this moment. Like, Jesus. <sighs> and it's so funny because he has such a good way of taking these songs that seem like ending Reservoir Dogs with um, that stupid coconut song. Yeah. Um, such so supposed to be a happy, go, you know, just a happy song. But when you punctuate it, when it's punctuated by the ending of Reservoir Dogs, it almost becomes sinister. And that is mm-hmm. the sound of this song almost becomes sinister in this scene. Um so she's grooving along to the song. Uh, she's wearing Vincent's coat and she's digging around in his pockets, finds the heroin, which again, we know she is, mistakes for Coke. She mistakes for Coke, um, which I'm going to assume the uh, strength of those are vastly different. Uh, you can snort. I did look it up, by the way. You can snort heroin, but that's not, I don't think it's a very common way of doing it. And if she's never had heroin or whatever, like it's going to hit her differently. So she's, she, is snorting the way she would snort coke which she does on a regular basis and then she immediately goes into overdosing and while it's not like overly graphic initially her reaction of just oh man her reaction always gives me chills because it would be so scary to be in that situation she's kind of like you know moaning and like holding her nose and just Mm -hmm. you can tell she's very uncomfortable and then we cut to the close-up of blood coming out of her nose and her eyes are starting to roll back Um, which how long was vincent in that bathroom because when we cut back she is slumped over on the couch and she's already like thrown up i feel like that happened pretty quick like i I know i i in over like that's why vincent immediately after this is like picking her up rushing he you know he crashes his car into eric schultz's yard and house like because you have such a limited time here yeah um it's all gonna happen very quick i would love that line of are you calling me on a cell phone? <laughs> I don't know you. Prank caller, prank caller. Call, call. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Uh, and I love how he, so yeah, I mean, he grabs me, uh, he seems speeding in the car and he's he's trying to call Lance and Lance is uh, watching a cartoon, eating cereal and just letting the fucking phone ring, which of course is just heightening the tension of this entire scene. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just, God damn it. it. Even in a movie where it's not supposed to be suspenseful or or uh, heighten the tension whenever the phone rings i see somebody just sitting there not, not answering i'm just like god damn it answer the fucking phone <laughs> i think this is supposed to be suspenseful for sure oh no no no! i was saying even in movies where that's not the case 
but oh, the person yeah. is still letting it ring. I'm like, God damn it, answer the it's phone already. Yeah. Um, and I just like how, uh, what's his name, Jody, his girlfriend, I'm assuming. Uh, mm-hmm. She's uh, like, Lance, the yeah, uh, Roseanne Arquette. Roseanne Arquette, yes. Um, I just like how she yells, Lance, the fucking phone is ringing. And he just goes, I can hear it. Just so, oh my God, just so nonchalant. And then, yeah, tells him, tells uh, uh, Vincent tells Lance the situation. And that's when we get the, uh, hey, are you on a cell phone? Like, I don't know. You prank caller, prank caller. As soon as he hangs up, you immediately hear tires screeching and a crash. Crashing, yeah. Uh, he goes running outside and sees uh, John Travolta pulling uh, Mia out of the car. And what is, God, what is so funny? kind of funny at the same time is as he's like dragging her across the lawn you know he's kind of he's kind of picking her up by her shoulders and and she's a good two feet off the ground but as soon as lance puts up like a fight and is arguing he just drops her he just lets her fall which is kind of funny he just drops her like a damn rag doll um maybe he thinks it'll wake her up <laughs> God. um so yes yeah, so yeah she- this is this is like another really iconic scene oh god um, yeah um so he basically tells him like hey you know this is marcellus wallace's wife um i will definitely tell him you in no way helped me if she fucking dies right here so you might want to help me and so of course he agrees to help um so he orders uh his uh, girlfriend jody to find the adrenaline shot which um is always a disclaimer that will never work do not give the person adrenaline um if some, they are overdosing, that does not work, um, especially in the way he does it. They were saying with that much force going into somebody with that tiny needle, the needle's just going to break and you're going to be screwed anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So It's a movie. Don't don't take it, medical exactly. advice My from a movie. God. Like, yeah, come on. Yeah. Um, it's always so I'm, funny when there's certain things you watch and they give a, oh, don't try this at home or whatever. And it's like, no, shit. Who would do this? But there's those people. But did you yeah. not hear? I, this was in the UK that some people, uh, after watching Breaking Bad, started um, like doing all of the like cooking meth and whatever, but also starting to uh, do some of the things. Like I think they poisoned, trying to poison someone in the same way that they did in Breaking Bad and stuff. So that definitely I happens. Mean, quick little sidebar: was was meth a thing in the UK before Breaking Bad? <laughs> I can't speak on particulars <laughs> because I don't know, but who knows? I know mess big in Australia randomly. Whoa, that's weird. But I would just say this, um, John Travolta is so good in this scene and I love the his delivery of, get the shot, get the shot. Oh my it's God, so because, because yeah. she just keeps arguing with him. Like, oh my God. It's yeah. so frustrating. This whole scene is anxiety inducing. It's so anxiety inducing. Even uh, knowing the outcome, knowing that Uma lives, no, like, or that Mia lives, like, it's something about this just, ugh, it's, it's frustrating. It's, yeah. And, and again, such a, such a tonal shift from the, the previous scene of them just being so happy and you just vibing out to the song and the the atmosphere and whatnot and yeah just a complete tonal shift um so yeah he tells her to he they draw a little mark on her chest and he says you know you have to jam it in hard because you have to get through her breastbone to get to her heart which oh, again don't do that yeah. um so yep he they oh my god it's the longest count of three ever too like he says on the count of three and of course everything is just so drawn out it's really like there's nine really no seconds. reason to even count to three <laughs> too it's just weird it's just a draw uh, <laughs> it's just a mount of tension yeah um yeah. so yeah it's, stabs it into her chest she immediately wakes up and is screaming freaking out and i love that uh 
oh, is it Lance that says, say something? And she just looks down at her chest with the, and yeah. looks at the shot and just goes, something? And I, yeah, <laughs> Jody just, that says, say something. And Jody just goes, that was pretty fucking trippy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to say on the Eric Stoltz character, because we don't see him again after this, yeah. do we? That mm-hmm. he, mm-hmm. Is, um, it is, he is a really well-written character in the sense that I was never doing heroin or anything, but I smoked I smoked a lot of weed in college and I knew these people. I knew people <laughs> like this that mm-hmm. would that would sell you weed, that would be in their house or apartment or whatever all day, all night. They'd never leave and they would always be in like a dressing gown watching eating cereal <laughs> and watching yep. cartoons yeah. and stuff. Like I know mm-hmm. those people. <laughs> and so that was and it also seemed to me like I don't know if I'm just reading too much into it, but it's like as if he came for money as well. Like, uh, it's not like he seemed quite well put together and kind of entitled and privileged and whatever. And I also knew a lot of people like that at college as well that sort of came from money and then were like, you know, drug dealers now and whatever. Mm. But yeah, I think it, it was a good, like a, a well-written character and a good performance from him as well. It most definitely, and it would have been very interesting. It's I still think it would have been interesting to see Quentin play this part. It would have been again. It's one of those things. It's so ingrained in your brain how it already is. So having a change, you're automatically not going to like it. But it would have been very interesting to see Quentin play Lance. But I totally get why he wanted to be uh, behind the camera for this scene. Um, for sure. Uh, which. They filmed it when uh, John Travolta slams the needle down into Uma's chest. Uh, they filmed that in reverse, so he wouldn't really actually hit her, harder, actually yeah. hit her chest, or have to stop yeah. short and it look weird. So yeah, they just they Which filmed is smart, just having it up and then he like shoots the hand up. You know, yeah, so. so they filmed it backwards and then ran it forwards. Or yeah, um, that's so, so everybody's just everybody just kind of collapses for a second, and then we cut back to. Uh, Cut back to Vincent dropping me off at home. And it's funny because I'm not like, I don't mean this in a mean way or anything, but for some reason right here when she looks all disheveled and all that, she always reminds me of Winona Ryder and Beetlejuice. <laughs> like go back and look at her again. What about that is mean? I, I said, I'm not trying to make that mean, but I don't know something about it. Just that's always what that reminds me of. Like I say, go back and look at her in that scene, and you'll probably. Winona Ryder and Beetlejuice is a compliment. Like, <laughs> I, I know, but yeah. like, like I said, like no, I, I love one of my favorite things is them in the car after not saying a fucking word to each other, just being absolutely traumatized. And I was telling Kayla that one of my favorite memes of 2020 was like the beginning of 2020 at the end of 2020 like was them in the car before going to jackrabbit and then oh, them coming home after man. she ODs. um because yeah. yeah it's it's like the faces of absolute trauma and when they get back to the apartment you know oh Chance yeah it's like i'm gonna go i'm gonna go like throw up or whatever now <laughs> so mia finally decides to tell vincent the fox force 5 joke she was kind of telling him about back at jackrabbit slims it's the classic you know mama tomato squishes baby tomato and says ketchup um but she walks away towards the door uh vincent blows her a kiss and that is the end of this section that is the end of vincent vega and marcellus wallace's wife and that is also where we are going to end part one of this episode yes we had to split this episode into two parts because i don't know if you've noticed but you are 
currently almost two hours in, and we are only halfway done with the movie. So, thank you guys for listening. We hope you tune in for the exciting conclusion of part two of this episode. Uh, Thank you everyone for listening. We really do appreciate it. We love you guys so much. We hope you're enjoying the show so far, and we will see you next time.